Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Sue Desmond Hellman. Sue, and I don't say this lightly, is a biotech industry legend. She's an oncologist and a public health professional by training. She made her name in the biopharmaceutical industry at Genentech from 1995 to 2009, the glory days when it became the world's most important developer of new cancer drugs. She was there when the company developed the original targeted antibodies for cancer, Rituxan, Herceptin, and Avastin. These were drugs that transformed the treatment of cancer. They were true scientific breakthroughs and delivered the goods, improving the lives of thousands and thousands of patients around the world. After Genentech, she served as Chancellor of UCSF and then worked as CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation until January of 2020. Currently, among other things, Sue is a board member for Pfizer and is an advisor to GV, the venture capital firm formerly known as Google Ventures. In this episode, I focused mostly on Sue's early career, growing up, becoming a doctor, working on the front lines of the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco, and finding her way into industry. We talk some toward the end about her time at Genentech, which I think is of the greatest interest to listeners of this show. It would take at least two hours to cover the highlights of her career, and while I'm proud to call this show the long run, I don't think it should run quite that long. Sue, as you'll hear, is a wonderful person to talk with, and I think you'll enjoy hearing about her journey and lessons she's picked up along the way. Now, for a word from the sponsor of the long run, DNA Script. DNA Script recently launched the Syntax system, the first ever benchtop enzymatic DNA printer, which uses its proprietary enzymatic synthesis technology. The Syntax system prints DNA on demand right in the lab. Researchers simply import their sequences, and within hours, the system synthesizes DNA oligos that can be used immediately in molecular biology and genomics workflows. DNA Script's enzymatic DNA synthesis emulates nature to overcome the drawbacks of chemical-based methods traditionally used until now. Designed for fully automated walk-away synthesis, the Syntax system takes less than 15 minutes to set up with no special training to operate. With Syntax, researchers can accelerate discovery with DNA on demand. For more information on DNA Script, please go to www.dnascript.com. Now, please join me and Sue Desmond Hellman on the long run. Sue Desmond Hellman, welcome to the long run. Thank you. So, Sue, before we dive in, uh, I want to just say, uh, you know, I know that you're on the board of Pfizer, and it's been quite an amazing year and a half or so, and I really want to give hats off to Pfizer for stepping up and helping BioNTech and developing this mRNA vaccine in record time and incredible efficacy. Um, I, I can't imagine, like, what this has been like for you as a board member to kind of witness this from a bird's eye view. Uh, it, it is thrilling. It is uh, literally the first time that I've been involved in something where I not only have so much respect for the companies involved, the people involved, um, not just at the the um, pharma companies, but also the people who have been executing the delivery and the distribution. 
And I got to have a vaccine. I got to have two doses of the vaccine. And like so many people, I felt emotional. I felt so grateful. I thought, you know, my my life will be better and the lives of so many people will be better because of this vaccine. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think you kind of encapsulated it right there, like the the individual and the population. Like you think about both. Like your career really spans both individual medicine, the, the doctor-to-patient relationship, as well as the public health, the bigger picture implications. No, I always feel that way. I always feel that, that I want to think like a public health person and empathize like a physician. And it does, it, it, if you think too much from a population standpoint, you can forget that there's a human being with a family and loved ones and uh, uh, things they're scared of and hopes and dreams. Um, and if you think too much like an individual physician, you can forget that there's a bigger picture and costs and societal issues and everything else. So I've always been grateful that I've gotten to see medicine and innovation from both sides. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I really want to kind of come to understand your journey a little better. And but before I dive in, though, I want to say something, just how nice it is to speak to you, because like when I think of you, I think of a positive person. You, you, and, you know, not in a Pollyannish sort of way and not in a forced positivity that you sometimes get, like, you get the sense that sometimes business leaders have read a business book that said they were supposed to be positive around the troops. And so that, you know, they, they try to present a certain face. But I, I don't get that sense with you. I get the sense that you're, like, genuinely positive and uplifting to people around you. And I wonder, is that something that like you've you've just always been that way. Does that come naturally, or did you like try to consciously cultivate that? Well, well, first of all, thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. Um, I've always been that way. I've always been glass half full. Um, what great thing is going to happen today? Um, and so I I like that about myself. And when I started caring for people who had HIV, AIDS, or cancer. I found to my surprise and delight that patients, instead of being put off by my innate optimism and sunny disposition, they liked it. One of my favorite patients told me once, can you wear that orange dress with the flowers when I come get my chemotherapy? Because it makes me happy. And I thought, I'll I'll wear any dress you want, (laughs) you know? And I I think, at least for me, um, especially when when things are most difficult, what can I do? Uh, if I can show up in ways that help people enjoy their day, well, have, sign me up. You know, this reminds me, one little Sue Hellman story that I was thinking about before our, our call was, I don't know if you remember this, but I wrote a story maybe 10 years ago about Reg Kelly at UCSF and QB3, and you were at UCSF at the time. And I, I uncovered some details about him that he was born in poverty and uh, was only really able to go to school on a scholarship that was established post-World War II for like, poor kids in Great Britain. And uh, I remember he wrote a note to me afterwards that said, wow, Luke, um, I didn't know that. Uh, important detail about this guy who I really like and respect and I work with like on an almost daily basis. And so it was just like you expressing gratitude. And I just thought, you know, that's um, the rare kind of feedback <laughs> that that uh, that we get. It was, you know, it isn't like, you know, 
I mean, it, it felt genuine. Yeah, yeah. No, it's. Uh, it, it, I think that um, somebody used a saying once. Um, you saw me. You see me. And you, especially with people who might be in a, an underrepresented minority, that someone actually sees them and cares about their story, like you did with Reg. That's a really valuable thing. You know, you care about me. You you see me. You see who I am, and and more importantly, you respect who I am and see how that um, adds value to the world. Boy, that feels special. That's I, I'm not surprised that Reg was positive about that. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think we've established you're a, you're a real human being. <laughs> um, so where does Sue Hellman come from? You, 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 uh, are a girl from Reno. Uh, take me back. Where, what was the saint, the scene like where you were born and raised? So I was actually born in Napa, California. Um, the, the, my dad was born and raised in San Francisco and he went to pharmacy school in Wyoming, met my mom, and they settled down in Napa and he worked in a small pharmacy. When he and another buddy noticed that the guy who ran the pharmacy's sons were going to pharmacy school, they thought this isn't going to be a good long-term gig. So when I was one uh, and uh, had a newborn sister and a two-year-old sister, my parents moved uh, to Reno. Um, Reno was really small then and um, really Western and different and uh, um, a new town. And my dad and his partner opened up a, um, a privately owned uh, um, drugstore. And so Reno was growing, but small. Um, Nevada was and is a really unique state. You know, that I used to say the, the motto of Nevada is live and let live. When I lived there, the in some counties, prostitution was legal, gambling was legal, there was no speed limit. <laughs> they, they were sort of anti-rules. But here's this kind of crazy place. And uh, four more kids were born in, in Nevada. And despite this crazy place, I went to Catholic school for 12 years. My parents were extremely strict. You know, we had curfews. We couldn't go see... Uh, uh, any movies, but G movie, like, you know, the, the, the living in the, we couldn't work in a casino, I should add, um, living in the middle of a state that was live and let live. Uh, there was no live and let live in our, uh, house. <laughs> it was very strict and very, um, uh, uh, both my parents were first in their family to go to college. And in retrospect, I am so very grateful they loved education. They loved learning. My mom was an English teacher. She loves books. And so in our house, at dinner time, you talked about school. Um, you talked about reading books. You talked about um, uh, what you learned. You, we talked about what my dad did at the drugstore. Um, we ended up, as I grew up, doing odd jobs in the drugstore. So it was um, it was just a great big Catholic family upbringing that I really um, uh, feel privileged to have had. It was a family of seven. Is that right? Seven kids. Yes. And where were you in the birth order? Number two. Okay. Okay. So you're not the oldest and the, the proverbial responsible one, but <laughs> were you sort of r responsible for some of your you know, younger siblings as, 
Did you take on those kind of yeah. tasks? No, I was not the the um, oldest, but I was the responsible one. <laughs> the the uh, um, the youngest in my family was born um, the summer after I finished high school, um, so a real late uh, child, and um, and so especially the youngest kids in the family. Those of us who were older did um, a lot of helping mom and things like that. And yeah, we, it, I was definitely a responsible kid. And you mentioned the, you know, the Catholic upbringing, Catholic schools. I actually um, was raised Catholic and attended Catholic school for a while. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't or, or misunderstand that um, or, or look at it from a lens from today. But what were you say were some of the values that were instilled Back then, I mean, at least where I was in the upper Midwest, there was an emphasis on community service, uh, like the Jesuit tradition, uh, education, community service, um, the meek shall inherit the earth, uh, these kind of things. Oh, I, I so agree with you. And, and the, the, um, both in the grammar school and in the high school, there was very much a sense of giving back. There's, uh, um, a sense of, you know, what it meant to be a good person and values. I, I happily had a seventh grade teacher, uh, Sister Adita Maria Rojo, who was also a physician. Um, and so we had um, all sorts of different talents in, in the, the uh, um, faculty as well um, and the teachers that we were able to interact with. But our family's life also revolved around um, the church and the school. And so there was a lot of things that had to do with, you know, was there a fundraising drive or, or you know, getting closed for something because something bad happened or, or things like that were really important. Um, so it was, um, it, I think some Catholic schools have evolved to being more of what I would call a private school. Um, and uh, our schools were... Um, less of a feel of a private school. It didn't have a huge tuition, although for us it was a lot of money. Um, but it, it was more of a religious school than a private school. Yeah, yeah. And what kind of student were you? Um, <laughs> I mean, if I had one word, I'd say embarrassing. Um, uh, I was a fierce student. And I'm... I'm uh, I'm not sure where that came from, but um, I was a big studier, big reader. I was competitive, so I uh, um, uh, did really well in school. I did really well in in grammar school, and then I was a valedictorian in high school. And just um, I I was very interested in school, and I wanted to be good at it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So you aim for those straight A's. But what did uh what subjects really um spoke to you or inspired you? You know, it's it's interesting to me the the um I liked all the subjects. I, I actually liked writing and I liked reading a lot and English. Um but my favorite subject for sure was math. I loved math. Um, I didn't have, um, and I think this was the downside of the kind of small school, um, I didn't have as much exposure to great um, 
chemistry, biology, things like that. Um, but math, I had some really good math teachers, uh, a great geometry teacher, and I loved math. And my dad was really good at math. And, you know, in families, my mom would say, oh, you're just like your dad. And, <laughs> and so I... I took it as, you know, I'm like my dad, he's good at math, I'm good at math. It wasn't until I went to college um, and particularly took organic chemistry uh, um, and some other courses in science that I, uh, that I had more of an affinity for science. But before that, my favorite was math. Okay, so you're, you're valedictorian, you're obviously uh, going places, you're ambitious as a student. Uh, how, how did you, did you just, when did you decide you wanted to become a doctor? And I, I guess, was that at University of Nevada, Reno? Oh, no. <laughs> we have a funny, um, picture, uh, of, of me with a plastic stethoscope. Um, and I think I was eight or nine, something like that. Um, and I remember having a conversation with my dad about whether it was, a better job to be a doctor or a pharmacist. Um, <laughs> my memory of this, which his probably would be different, um, but the my memory was him reminding me that the doctors gave the orders, and that was kind of a good thing. <laughs> um, but but I wanted for sure I was going to college, um, and because I was on my way to medical school, that that was not uh, that was not in question for me. So you're pre-med from early days uh, as an undergrad. Completely. In, in fact, in college, um, and again, in retrospect, it might have been good to be a little more broad and a little more um, educated uh, in, in arts and sciences. But I went to college for three years um, because I wanted to get to medical school. Okay. Okay. So uh, how did you end up at University of Nevada, Reno? Just the hometown school? A couple miles away from our house, I lived at home and was so close to running out of money by the time uh, medical school was over. I had a couple student loans, but not giant student loans. Um, but uh, I was I, I was going to school where where I could decrease the expenses. Yeah, yeah. Well, and with the family, uh, a large family, you can't just pay uh, private school tuition for all seven kids. <laughs> No, I was very, um, uh, I was really concerned about my parents and especially having so many kids um, uh, and all, I think every single one of us went beyond college. <laughs> so the, uh, um, uh, it, it just, it was such, um, it was important to me that especially if my dad was going to retire someday and they you know, could stop worrying so much about their kids and, and paying for things that I not contribute to it, that being harder. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Don't want to be a burden. I get it. <laughs> um, so you kind of hurry your way three years through your undergraduate degree uh, and go to medical school. And where was that? University of Nevada. Okay. So you still stayed at home? I, I lived at home the entire time at medical school. Yeah, the, I, I did not. In fact, it's it's uh, funny in my uh, when I went to UCSF, 
um, you know, I'm being going to be an intern and, and uh, in internal medicine. It was the first time I had um, uh, lived outside of my parents' house was then after, after medical school. And in fact, the, when I went to University of Nevada it, uh, for undergrad, it was the first time I didn't wear a uniform to school. <laughs> so I was, wow. So there was a lot of culture change happening for you when you made that move to residency. Yeah. And you would have been what, late, mid to late 20s then? I was, no, I was, because remember, I skipped a year. So when I started, I, I think I was 25, something like that. Um, okay. But yeah, no, my husband laughs. Um, at, uh, he, he claims, and I, I, I have seen, you know, we didn't take pictures as much because we didn't have smartphones, but I've seen a picture or two. And I think my husband's claim sadly is right, which is I still looked like a Catholic school kid. <laughs> Just very, you know, very naive and very, um, sheltered. And, and, uh, you know, I was focused on school and still helped my mom out a little bit at home. Um, uh, and uh, spent a lot of time in the library. So how did you end up going to UCSF? And what kind of doctor did you want to become there? Well, I evolved during medical school. I, I, when I went to medical school, I wanted to be a sports medicine doctor or an orthopedist because I'm really into sports and um, uh, thought that would be a great thing. When um, I started on the clinical rotations, I worked with a uh, physician, Dr. Stephen Hall, um, uh, an oncologist in Reno. And oh my gosh, that was life changing that, I mean, that they working with him and seeing his bedside manner, his intelligence, his knowledge of medicine. I just, I changed to thinking that oncology would be great. And so I knew I wanted to do internal medicine. And then if I specialized, I would do oncology, but you asked about UCSF, well, no, let, let, let's, let's back up here a little bit, Sue, because you, you were thinking of sports medicine. I mean, when I think of that, I think of, you know, uh, bandaging up a sprained ankle, sprained knee. I mean, taking care of athletes, it's, it's an important medicine. But you, you, something intrigued you here about oncology. Oh, yeah. No, so for me, the, I had this dreamy thing about um, sports medicine, that it was really interesting and I liked sports. And um, here's where I was off. First of all, I like sports. <laughs> you know, that's different than liking sports medicine. Um, I still like sports, you know, I still follow sports. I still run and, and cycle and do things like that. So I think that I was just young and I was just confused about, you know, what a day would be like. The other thing that I underestimated is, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, a, a real, uh, I, I don't have great hand-eye coordination and um, I'm not very strong. So I still remember, especially as a medical student, being in the operating room and somebody getting out like a mallet to do something for a hip operation. I'm thinking this this specialty involves tools. I don't know anything about oh, tools. Oh yeah, and, and wait until like you have a wrestler with a separated shoulder you got to put back in. I know, and yeah. I thought I I would constantly be asking for help because I'm completely not strong enough, not dexterous enough. Um, plus, I found surgery. You know, you gown and glove and get in a room um, uh, for hours on end holding a retractor. Oh, shoot me through the head. I just I actually didn't love surgery, even though it's very dramatic and especially students always put it on a pedestal. 
Now, oncology, on the other hand, there was DNA, there was uh, um, cell replication, there was there was all this great research going on. There was just so, and the patients, when uh, they faced their own mortality and the fright of being told that you have cancer, um, it could use a doctor with a good bedside manner, which, you know, unlike the thing with the hammer and everything, I can do that. So I love the patient interaction. I love the science of it. I love that it was a specialty that I thought was going to have um, positive change and improvements. So everything about me and oncology was a better fit than sports medicine. And this would have been something like the early 80s when like, we're beginning to learn just the beginnings of oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes. And uh, these things are getting published. And and at the time, all you had for tools was classic chemotherapy and radiation, right? Exactly. With a lot of side effects and um, the, it, the modern chemotherapy, you know, things like uh, gemcitabine or taxol or medicines like that w- were not around. So you had a lot of aging chemotherapy drugs that were being used in different combinations to you know, do the best you could for patients, but radiation, surgery, other things. So there was also a lot of end of life care because there wasn't uh, the kind of toolkit that we have today. DNA Script recently launched the Syntax system, the first ever benchtop enzymatic DNA printer, which uses its proprietary enzymatic synthesis technology. The Syntax system prints DNA on demand right in the lab. Researchers simply import their sequences, and within hours, the system synthesizes DNA oligos that can be used immediately in molecular biology and genomics workflows. DNA Script's enzymatic DNA synthesis emulates nature to overcome the drawbacks of chemical-based methods traditionally used until now. Designed for fully automated walk-away synthesis, the Syntax system takes less than 15 minutes to set up with no special training to operate. With Syntax, Researchers can accelerate discovery with DNA on demand. For more information on DNA Script, please visit www.dnascript.com. And if you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. This is the place where you'll get to read my weekly columns, regular profiles of interesting biotech startups, and insightful commentary from a diverse cast of contributing writers who I cultivate and edit. TR is a reader-supported publication. You can support quality independent biotech journalism like this through purchasing an annual subscription for $169 a year. Go to TimmermanReport.com for more. Group discounts are available. So you move on to UCSF, and what happened next for you? Well, it... it So many things happened in 1982 when I came to UCSF. Um, The first thing that I was so proud of and so wanted to do um, my best and and represent Nevada well is, to my great surprise and delight, uh, UCSF, for the first time ever uh, in their internal medicine department, took a kid from University of Nevada. (laughs) <laughs> it was like, it was, it was so exciting. And I was so very happy to be uh, at UCSF because it's a 
great institution. Um, it just was for me like going to the big leagues. Um, happily, because I was for the first time ever out of uh, out of the house, my my aunt and uncle and my grandma lived down the street from UCSF. Um, so that was convenient. And I was grateful to have family in the city. And But two other seismic events happened in 1982. One is, um, and we just uh, um, passed the 40th anniversary of um, HIV AIDS being described. So yeah. HIV AIDS is described in 81. And I hit San Francisco as an intern in 82. And um, so the entire training program was heavily, heavily influenced by that terrible uh, epidemic um, among gay men in San Francisco. Um, and the other thing uh, was that, that UCSF also took another uh, kid from a state school from University of Kentucky, uh, Nick Hellman, uh, who became my best friend as an intern. And uh, we've been together ever since. So that was good news as well. Well, that's uh, that is a great story, and that you do have those common backgrounds. Um, but I find this really interesting that this is where things get interdisciplinary for you, because at this time you're still uh, training to be an oncologist, right? But HIV/AIDS, HIV/AIDS is is breaking out and manifesting with Kaposi's sarcoma in many cases. Right. That's right, Luke. So in by the time my training, by the time I was three years into my training, I actually moved into the AIDS clinic and started taking care of Capsie sarcoma patients full time. That so that was my experience at UCSF is that there were so many patients. Um, with this AIDS-related cancer, and some patients with lymphoma, although many fewer, um, that, that that was my specialty. That, that was, an, and the first grant that I ever got um, was a grant to study uh, Capsi sarcoma. So in a way, you're kind of like one of the early immuno-oncologists. I mean, if you could just speak for a second on the science here, like there was something going on with immune dysregulation which caused this particular type of, of cancer to, to emerge. It was so interesting. If you remember, the, there was a form of Kaposi sarcoma that we later called Mediterranean or typical Kaposi sarcoma that had been a very rare event in, in elderly uh, males uh, in the Mediterranean area. But here, as these patients had low CD4 cells and immune systems that weren't right, um, some came with pneumocystis carinii pneumonia or fungal infections or other infectious diseases, but some presented with Kaposi's sarcoma. And so it was definitely the most obvious um, evidence of the importance of your immune system and fighting off a cancer that, that if we didn't have an intact immune system in this way, um, many more people would experience. So, I mean, you didn't, again, have a lot of great tools um, in these years. What did you do for these patients? So the, there was, um, we used some chemotherapies that we had, um, traditional chemotherapies, um, but we always were balancing that with the fact that that would make people sick. 
and potentially put them at risk for the infectious diseases that you see with HIV AIDS. So we also use some local radiation, especially if there was um, something that was painful. Um, but we didn't have a lot of tools. Um, and back in the early days of HIV, it's hard to even think about this now that we have highly active antiretrovirals. It, it, and I will say that the, the patients just didn't live very long, um, treatment or no treatment. So that they, as I cared for those patients before we had good tools, I would focus on pain relief, end-of-life care, symptom um, improvements and make sure they had pain meds and things like that because these were but, bad days. So, but at UCSF, you're surrounded by a lot of great biologists as well as physicians. And this is when you're kind of becoming a physician scientist um, in this very um, highly uncertain uh, arena of, of HIV and, and all its downstream manifestations. Y you um, you made a move to go to Uganda. And I think, did you go there with, with Nick as well? Yes. Nick and I went to study heterosexual transmission of HIV in a Rockefeller Foundation-funded project um, uh, during the AIDS epidemic. Now, what drew you to Uganda? What were you expecting to, to do and learn? And how did it turn out for you? Well, what, what drew both of us and the original intent was to ask the question, is, is there heterosexual transmission of HIV going on in Africa? Um, in the U.S., we had these risk groups that we were pretty clear about, but what was happening in Africa and was very frightening was evidence of heterosexual transmission. Um, and so the original intention, and that remained, was to try and understand things like um, uh, sexually transmitted diseases and other behaviors that might be contributing to a much higher rate of, um, of sexual transmission through heterosexual uh, interaction. And then the, the secondarily, um, I, had a, I had moved my grant to study Kaposi sarcoma to Uganda. So we were seeing a massive number of patients with Kaposi sarcoma. And in addition to the Mediterranean form of Kaposi sarcoma, there's also an African form of Kaposi sarcoma. Um, and in that milieu, it was, it was literally, Kaposi sarcoma was just exploding in, in Uganda. And, um, and so trying to understand that, trying to help care for those patients and do that research was really an important part of the project. You know, Sue, I actually visited Uganda a couple of years ago on before my Kilimanjaro trip, and I visited the Uganda Cancer Center, uh, where um, I, I know you you trained or you you did your work because the, the 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 tour guide told me he said you're sitting in the same seat that Sue was in. You know, you 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 had um, I guess uh, been on a uh, you had visited there again many years later to to check in. But I mean, how did this experience shape you and and because, uh, I mean, again, you said you were this kind of naive, little sheltered um, person from Reno, Nevada. Uh, now, all of a sudden, the world's opening up. You go to San Francisco. You're, you're spending time in Africa treating this, this huge epidemic. I will say, and, and um, this is not an exaggeration, the, for Nick and I, having um, gone to Uganda seven years after we got to UCSF, there was sort of a before and after in our lives. Um, 
before we went, we were doing, you know, try and get A plus in school, get a good grade on the test, do your training. Um, and then we hit San Francisco in this terrible epidemic. So for us, going to Uganda was a chance to contribute. It was a reminder of how good we have it here and how easy our lives are. Um, and it it just was a very powerful um, uh, a, a powerful way to think about how what the world should expect from you if you're given a lot. Um, I think that it, it, you talked about turning into a physician scientist. I think that for me, um, I I wouldn't characterize my evolution so much as turning into a physician scientist. I think that happened more at Genentech, honestly. I think okay. it, my training and going to Uganda in the next few years moved from like doing a good job to making a contribution. I see. Yeah. You see that there's a, a really big wider world out there of, of, pa of patients in need. Yeah. The people, most people don't get all the good stuff. You know, people now use words like privilege. I think that, that it was sort of like smack in the face um, okay, privilege like crazy. Now, what are you going to do? So, so who cares if you're smart? Who cares if you know how to do X, Y, or Z? Who's going to benefit? What's going to be better in the world as a result of you? Yeah, yeah. So you do a couple years there in Uganda, and what was your next move then? <laughs> it was going back to UCSF and finding out that they didn't have a global health program and didn't know what to do with us. <laughs> so we uh, we went into practice for a couple of years. Um, as I like to say now, I was a real doctor for two years, a practicing oncologist. I uh, took my boards, passed my oncology boards. Um, and then Nick got recruited to Bristol-Myers Squibb to work on D4T, one of the first antiretroviral drugs. And I was the trailing spouse and got put on uh, working on, on Taxol. Oh, okay. So the newer chemotherapy of the time. The newer chemotherapy, oh. yeah. And I had actually heard about it when I was in practice and was really intrigued by it and um, got to work on Taxol when it was only approved initially for ovarian cancer and I worked on the approval with my colleagues for uh, breast cancer in the U.S. and Europe. So you're making the move here from uh, being a practicing physician, uh, you and Nick, to going over to industry. I mean, that, that was a, a pretty big move. Um, what, what, how did you think about the pros and cons of that? We had a lot of uncertainty. I had a lot of uncertainty about whether or not it was going to be the right thing to do. So I kept my medical license and I participated in the heme clinic at the West Haven VA um, because we were in Connecticut. So I had a backup strategy because I really wasn't sure that things would work out because um, uh, I didn't know that much about industry. And um, so there was a lot of uncertainty and a lot of concern about what, you know, we put on a black hat and become the bad guys, that kind of thing. So how long were you there? Uh, and, and what did you pick up and really learn about industry in that first stint at BMS? We were there for two years and I loved it. I loved everything about being at BMS. I loved the statistics because I got to use my MPH. 
I loved drug safety because it was all about medicine. I loved uh, the regulatory side of things because it was strategic. I loved my colleagues because they were so knowledgeable and they knew a lot more about things than I did. And they were generous enough to teach me. I did not like the snowstorms in Connecticut. (laughs) uh, The weather was bad and we were far away from home. Um, And it was only because Genentech recruited me that we left because I just, I thought Bristol Myers Squibb, Taxol, the team, the people, and working on product development. I thought, what took me so long to figure out that this is the perfect job for me? But you, uh, this is a point where you're no longer um, having that individual doctor-patient relationship. Or, or are you still treating patients kind of part-time while you're focused on these these bigger picture issues, how to develop a new medicine that will help many, many people? Yeah, you know, I did a little bit of clinical work when I was in Connecticut, but not a lot. And I discovered that unlike some physicians who successfully do um, product development and clinical work, many cancer patients are just too sick to have their doctors, you know, super part-time. Um, so I kind of gave up on that idea and got comfortable with what I told one of my patients when I left practice, which was that I would try and do something for her um, and lots of other cancer patients rather than one patient at a time. Okay. Um, and then you go to Genentech. And I think this was mid-90s, 95, is that right? Yes, 95. Okay. So can you describe the scene. What um, what did you discover when you arrived back there in South San Francisco and and what were you supposed to do? Well, it was it, it was so very different than Bristol Myers Squibb. It's just impossible to tell you how different it was. They um, first of all, it was tiny. You know, when I left Genentech, it was eleven thousand. I think when I came, it was about two thousand. So it was way smaller. Um, Genentech had three approved drugs, growth hormone, uh, activase, and pulmazyme. Um, they wanted, they had aspirations to be a cancer company. They had no cancer drugs. Um, and they had gamma interferon in the pipeline. And um, uh, it was it was very much a... Um, a very research-driven, research-oriented um, company. Um, Art Levinson was the head of R and D, and um, it was it was pretty um, wild west compared to the buttoned-up Bristol <laughs> Myers Squibb. <laughs> so it was really different. Yeah. So, what was an oncologist with this HIV background and a master's in public health and statistics? What, 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 how are you supposed to fit in? I, you know, it's funny that that um, I will say that if if I had one attribute that I'm glad I had, I just rolled up my sleeves. And said, look, I just got through with all this stuff at, at Bristol-Myers Squibb. I know how to do X, Y, and Z. You know, you're doing this. Can I help? You know, can I write a protocol? Can I help you with this? Can I think through with you on that? And so I just dove in the pool and started swimming. <laughs> you know, it's uh, and, and the happy thing was, and I think this is w- the reason why I did well at Genentech, what they needed, I had learned how to do at BMS. 
you know, so they needed a lot more work on the skill set of doing clinical trials, interacting with the regulators, because the background at, at, um, uh, and the chief medical officer at the time was a pediatric endocrinologist. They had sort of grown up from the growth hormone days where you did these relatively small trials in a specialized group of kids. And then they did the Timmy and Gusto trials with cardiologists in cooperative groups. And then Palm Design was also super specialized. So branching out to things that were like a company-sponsored trial or things like that were just really new to Genentech, um, really new to Genentech. <laughs> well, and there were the old stories about, you know, the, the recombinant insulin where they partnered up with Lilly, you know, years ago. And it was, you know, the, the original like science culture. I mean, they definitely had the science culture, but not really its own clinical development uh, organization for oncology, not not in the, um, you know, well-oiled machine that it would later become. <laughs> exactly. And you know what's great is that's what we built. And what I realized over time, especially as I spent more time with the research group, is you can build a clinical group and you can build that capability, not fast, but relatively fast, you know, and you can uh, get some muscle doing that over and over again. The The fact was that Genentech was founded in 76. So I got there, you know, almost 20 years later. That research muscle, you know, you can't grow that overnight. And boy, were, were they and are they good at research? I was just, and I was so excited to spend time with scientists and to work on what I, I think you would call translational research. Um, that was fun. That was now inspiring. At the- at that time, uh, mid-90s, you get there. Um, was there already a partnership in place with uh, IDEC on rituxan, you know, the original monoclonal antibody there for was, cancer? There was not. Uh, it, the partnership came, I think, in 95, 96, because rituxan was approved in 97. And then Herceptin came just a year later, I think, 98. 98. That's right. Your memory's good. <laughs> so, so you had, oh, um, I mean, two in retrospect. Um, monumental um, advancements, monoclonal antibodies for cancer, which people by this point had been talking about for <laughs> about 20 years, uh, hadn't really, you know, manifested in the form of approved therapies. And these needed to be taken across the finish line and brought all the way to the market for patients. That's right. So we, with IDEC, with Antonio Rio Lopez, we worked on the, the approval of Rituxan. And then, um, which was hard but then Herceptin, which was massively hard because we had to get the, the therapeutic and the diagnostic. Um, and then not that long afterwards, Avastin. Yeah, yeah, the VEGF. Um, the VEGF and, uh, antibody. Yeah. That was a few years later. Um, but now, so by the time I came around and started writing about Genentech, it was later days. And those were kind of the big three products at the company. And the company was known for um, its, its uh, you know, exceptional work in cancer. Um, but what, what were some of the key things you learned in those, uh, as you kind of, you know, rose through the ranks and, and probably, I, I'm sure you had to make some hard decisions about things that, you know, you, drugs that you were going to put on the shelf. Um, I mean, it wasn't all, you know, rainbows and roses. <laughs> no, definitely not. So the, I, you know, there's so many things I learned The the, 
the, the most important thing goes back to that translation and the science and, and just doing your best to let the science and the data drive your decision making and the calls you make and what you thought you could do. Um, I think that was really important. The other thing was just that, and this is one of the things I actually ended up liking a lot about pharma and biotech is there's, you can take a lot of talented people, they each play a role and make something wonderful happen. Um, and we just ended up building a great team with, with people in so many roles on that team who knew what they were doing, which um, mattered a lot and made a huge difference. That was, that was a big, big deal. The things that, that I think that um, we were, we were probably naive from a commercial standpoint on how we thought about commercialization. I think we got better over time that that improved uh, at the company because we just didn't have a giant tradition of this big oncology portfolio. Um, and then we, as we grew, we had two problems as we grew. One is there were jobs where we couldn't find the right person for the job. And Art had this philosophy that if you couldn't find the right person for the job, you should just leave it open. You shouldn't take, you know, B minus. Um, and so we, we really struggled because we were growing so fast to find the right people. And then just management-wise, lots of people, me included, got promoted really fast and got these big jobs. And trying to make sure that you could do all aspects of the job, be a great manager, give people room to grow. You know, those are things I think any company that's growing fast struggles with. That sounds like putting a lot of stress on your a players, <laughs> you know, the juggling the a lot thing of balls. That, um, as I look back at the time I was uh, there, it was a wonderful time, and I worked harder than humans should work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you eventually learn to become a manager, and part of that job is delegating. Um, how did how did you learn about? what it takes to be a good manager? I would say a combination of good role modeling and bad role modeling um, were really important. Um, uh, I, Art was my boss for most of the time I was at Genentech, and there were things he did that I thought were really um, positives. I'll give you an example. He would often say, you don't think you're capable of that, but I think you're capable of that. I'll help you. Give it a try. You know, so he had this really nice way of encouraging um, taking some some risks. Um, uh, I also had people either that I managed or or other colleagues who I would see the results of of bad management, like people who felt threatened by great people instead of being proud of having great people, um, things like that. And then I I really liked working with HR. I learned a lot from experienced expert colleagues in HR and read a bit about trying to be a, a better manager. So I. I wanted to be good at management. It seems like it made a big difference. Um, and I worked hard to try and, and be good at it. And when you're having a bad day <laughs> or, or something goes sideways, um, how do you handle it personally? And, um, you know, how do you, uh, you know, model that, I guess, for your team? That's probably for me evolved over the years, but I think the, the, um, 
I'd say today versus 10, 15 years ago, it's, it, staff really expect a lot more transparency. So would expect you to share that with them um, in a respectable, you know, thoughtful way. Um, I've always tried um, to enjoy colleagues and enjoy other people. And that's uh, meant a lot to me if I'm having a bad day. I, I've used exercise since forever, since back when I thought I'd be a sports medicine doctor uh, for stress relief. I think it's, uh, you can't have a bad day if you get a good run in or a good bike ride in. Um, so things like that. And then I, my husband and I have had a rule that we've tried really hard, especially um, over time to have dinner together. And, you know, not have the TV on, not have anything going on, nobody working. Um, and and that just feels like towards the end of the day, you have a treat. It's always nice to have a treat. A little downtime. little downtime, a little family time. That's important. Even when you were busier than you could ever imagine. You know, the one thing I learned in medical school is, it, it, and this was for me, you know, people would pull all-nighters. I, I had a rule that I went to bed at 11 o'clock. If I had a good night's sleep, I could do anything. <laughs> you know, And I think feel the same way about having a nice dinner or a run or things like that. I could convince myself I should be working or I could uh, clear my brain and realize that when I work again, I'll be twice as good. Well, and it's sort of, you could file this one under Rome wasn't built in a day, right? I mean, if you're trying to make a difference for a lot of people, <laughs> um, it's not going to happen in your all-nighter. <laughs> you know, we had a, a saying in medicine, check your own pulse first. <laughs> it's a good yeah. saying. We're almost out of time, Sue. But, you know, you um, you moved on after Genentech. Roche acquired the company and um, you, you went to UCSF and Gates Foundation and now you're you're serving on some boards. I mean, and, and the amazing, uh, coming back to what we start, talked about at the beginning, I mean, just how amazing this past year and a half has been in terms of the the industry's ability to take a brand new virus and uh, turn it around with like new treatments, new diagnostics, v- remarkably effective vaccines. Are, are you, um, do you ever look around in just awe or amazement at what the industry has become in your time? You know, that is so well said. The, the fact that we have a group of companies, and, and it is, I mean, I, I, I'm a globalist, not a nationalist, but it's a huge American asset, and it's a huge global asset to have companies worldwide that have the capability to do what these companies have done for COVID. I think it is, but, you know, add that to... Um, what happened with uh, antiretroviral therapy for HIV. Add that to what happened with immuno-oncology. There's, there's so much more that can be done for people who are sick or who we want to prevent from getting sick. It's just a thing of beauty. Um, I, I'm in awe of uh, what's possible today. And, you know, I was at a meeting this morning where I was listening to uh, um, some of the gene editing things going on and thinking, oh, my goodness, who'd have thought, (laughs) you know, I think it's just outstanding. Yeah, you know, I'm a bit reflective, too, having written about the industry now for 20 years. I mean, I haven't been around as long, but um, the things that used to make news 20 years ago 
um, are wouldn't are nothing but a brief or a footnote today. The, the things that are happening today are just absolutely mind-boggling order of magnitude better. Uh, and and when you start to th- look at the companies that are out there today and have a chance to make a difference for a lot of different illnesses that you know we never had anything for, kind of like when you started. I mean. The next 20 years, <laughs> uh, you know, it'll, it'll be something to see. No, it will be. And I'm excited for, I'm excited for humanity, but I'm also excited for students and young people who will get to experience this and drive this. And that's the thing that, that I haven't said that I really think hopefully is, is maybe obvious, which is it is so much fun when you get to use science and work with colleagues to make something special happen. And it, it, it is just the, the sense of purpose, the sense of, of accomplishment and um, meaning that that has. I, I tell people that uh, when the day that Herceptin was approved, I still remember like it was yesterday. I, 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 thought, I thought that of all the women who would be able to get Herceptin, in the future and that that would change their lives. And it just, to me, it looks like, and I got to be part of this. <laughs> I was just so excited. It, and it did. And a lot more came. Yeah. Do you, uh, I'm sure you must get requests for advice from young people. And there are quite a few that listen to this show. Um, do you have any standard bits of advice for young people uh, about to oh, embark I, on careers I, in biotech? I think the thing is, it, it, and, and I think this is really important they, um, no matter what situation you find yourself in, like, you know, going to Bristol Myers Squibb, I had no idea what it was going to be like. Um, moving back and going to Genentech, I had no idea. No matter what the situation is, figure out what that um, effort needs and contribute as much as you can. Like, just figure out how you're going to contribute. And if you need to contribute differently or better, learn how to do that. And And the... The worry less about like how you look or, you know, perceptions or things like that. Worry more about contributions. It sounds a lot like the uh, growth mindset that uh, Carol Dweck at Stanford has popularized. Um, you know, don't be afraid of these things that 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 you, um, you know, you, you might feel a little uncomfortable with, you, you might not be the best math person <laughs> uh, or, or something else and just give it a go. Yeah, contribute, contribute. Maybe it rubbed off from Satya and my colleagues at uh, Microsoft when I was in Seattle. <laughs> they love that. Sue Desmond Hellman, thank you so much for spending time today on The Long Run. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it, Luke. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.